Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our daily lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, innovators, social critics, and some people who just have fascinating stories. Today, we're talking with Judge Gail Williams Byers about the impact of the recent not guilty verdicts in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Rittenhouse is the 18-year-old who shot and killed two protesters and wounded a third in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the shooting of Jacob Blake by Kenosha police. Judge Byers helps us look at the impact of this case on the judicial system, on the black community, and on future peaceful protests. Judge, uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict uh, just came out recently. Five charges, five not guilties, not guilty on a first-degree intentional homicide, not guilty on attempted first-degree intentional homicide, not guilty on first-degree reckless homicide, not guilty on first-degree recklessly endangering safety, and not guilty on first-degree recklessly endangering safety is second one of those charges. Two people are dead. One is severely wounded. Why did this come about this way? And so I think that we begin when we talk about the recent um, slate of not guilty verdicts for Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, when we think about it in the prism of, of what happened from a legal perspective, um, we start with the premise that in order for systems to work and for justice systems to work, we respect the rulings of the jury. We um, want to appreciate that they had a vantage point um, with regard to evidence and information that the rest of us do not. And and so if that is the perspective, um, I am challenged to understand how the jury reached the verdict of not guilty on each and every count, given what the rest of society knows and have seen um, and has had an opportunity to view. But also when placed in the, you know, greater context of a maybe good lawyering from, from the defense side. But I'm also kind of concerned um, as a judge with whatever perspective or perceived sway the presiding judge in this case may have had from the onset. The charges are serious and were serious. And I 
think that as with many who were viewing the case as it unfolded, um, jurors were perhaps placed in a predicament where they knew or at least felt very early on like the judge had an opinion about the case, even if that was not specifically verbalized and that their verdict was at least to some degree consistent with the opinions of of the presiding judge. That is the thing that concerns me. The idea is just as you said, you know, there are two people that are dead. Um, which by the way, very early on, there there was a ruling that these decedents could not be referred to as victims. Right, right. The the judge has that has that um, mantra in his court. He's done that a number of times, but he made that very clear in this case. And it again it is you know again particularly um, I think concerning for those who who may not have known that that had been a you know maybe a, a longstanding practice of of this jurist and l- let me tell you even in my experience i've had defense attorneys who have rejected the notion that um individuals in domestic violence cases be referred to as victims instead they've requested that they be referred to as complaining witnesses um in in an instance here where again you have decedents um the options that were provided in lieu of being referred to as victims were clearly terms that connote something far more negative or nefarious related to the decedents themselves, i.e. they could be referred to as rioters or looters. Nothing that seemed particularly positive when framing them in the context of being deceased. And even language like that, even if the, the, the ruling is not to refer to them as, as victims, the options in the alternative, I think could, there could be no no mistake that those were or could be perceived as, as negative um, perceptions that were already cast on the decedents for whom the state was required to advocate on behalf of as representative of the larger community. That's what that what that's what they were. And that troubled me probably from the onset. And I genuinely believe that that kind of sets the tone. And I, I think you would probably agree that judges are like human thermometers, right? In the courtroom. Right. They right. set right. the tone. Jur- jur- jurors pick up on the most subtle of nuance In, from the judge. Indeed. And in so far as this did not strike as a, a nuance at all, but it was an outright edict. It was a requirement and it had to be followed consistently throughout the trial. Um, it was more so underscoring, if you will, not just this is how I've consistently ruled, you know, this is how these individuals will be referred to, but here are your options in the alternative. And the options in the alternative were not positive options for um, the states or even neutral options, if you will, much less positive. They weren't even, they can't, I, I don't think there can be an argument that's made that these are considered neutral terms, referring to them as looters or rioters. Um, is not perceived as neutral and therefore places the state in the precarious situation of, of arguing for, essentially arguing for the bad guys. 
and which necessarily paints the defendant as the good guy, right? Just that, by that language. That and let's follow through. The the case was won, at least claimed by legal analysts and the defense team, on their argument that Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense. Under Wisconsin law, he had to be in fear of his own life or severe bodily harm. So by framing the, the decedents, as looters and rioters, uh, that sort of aids and abets the self-defense argument, correct? Precisely, and it sets it up from the onset of the case. So if this is the requirement before a witness is even called or any testimony is even taken, imagine the position of the prosecutors in having to choose just the right words and opening statements to make reference while framing, because that is your first opportunity to frame the contours of this case and how you believe the evidence is going to come out. And so you're absolutely right in that by doing that under Wisconsin law, what essentially was provided as the first of many gifts to the defendant was the the fact that yes these this idea of being in threat of um you know imminent death or bodily harm and to defend yourself under those circumstances is absolutely appropriate well to do so against a looter or a rioter would presumably in the minds of almost any other reasonable person would certainly place you in that mindset and that is perhaps I think that was perhaps the the framing from its onset and was also the through line throughout the entire case to some degree or another. And whether it's intentional or unintentional on the part of the judge, that was absolutely, I believe, a important component that played a part very early on and continued throughout this entire case. And that coupled with the idea that it negated the the idea that coming across state lines, being in possession of a firearm as a minor, um, engaging strangers for the purpose of protecting property over life, um, all of those things became, you know, some somewhat of, of a non-issue. In, in combating that, even with the prosecutor's argument that the defendant waives his right to self-defense when he engages in this behavior, all of that is negated when the ultimate direction comes from the judge. The judge, in this case, made a, a couple of other rulings. Uh, one, he's been criticized for. Another one, uh, it's certainly subject to legal debate. Uh, the first was that he uh, applauded veterans on Veterans Day. He made the everybody in the courtroom applaud veterans. And then the next defense witness was a veteran. Now, you know, we talked about the subtleties that, that jurors pick up from a judge. Uh, certainly one argument could be made that the jury picked up that this witness had higher degree of credibility than any other witness, but, but by the reason of being a veteran. 
somewhat how um, police officers have um, and are traditionally thought of in the sense of um, their testimony bearing perhaps more or greater weight than that of lay witnesses. And so I guess there's a there are a couple assumptions here, and I'm not certain um, which is correct or not. But it assumes that the judge was aware that the after the applauding, the next witness would be a defense witness and that that specific defense witness would also be a veteran. It may very well be true. And if, in fact, that is the case, then the timing of that series of events does present as particularly curious in light of, again, the seriousness of the offense, everything that was being considered um, and how those events unfolded. I think another thing that is important is, as you know, as judges and lawyers, we're governed by perceptions and rules um, that often speak to perception, if not actual behavior itself. And that is just the perception of impropriety or the perception that what you are doing or saying may be improper. And as judges and lawyers, we are to guard against any type of behavior or speech or anything that could be perceived as improper. And here's what we know. This is probably one of the most high-profile cases this jurist has ever um, presided over and and in, in his career. And during this time, he could expect that there would be an awful lot of media scrutiny of everyone's behavior, from his to the defense to the prosecutors, everyone's behavior. And so when it comes to these rules of guarding against what could be perceived as improper, you know, I think every other judge or any judge would just be extraordinarily careful, far less cavalier, but very, very careful in how things are handled and how they are approached and how rulings are explained. It doesn't mean that you have to change necessarily what you would do, but it does mean that you're a lot more careful about how you do it. And so in this instance, when you talk about the judge um, asking uh, or essentially requiring because judges don't really put their robes on, go into the courtroom and, you know, sit at the bench and then merely ask anything. There is this subtle expectation that merely by saying it, everyone will comply. And so to ask, and you can use air quotations to say that, to ask that you applaud a veteran or to applaud veterans just blanketly on Veterans Day because you are in the courtroom and to ask blanketly if there are any veterans in the room is, again, interesting. But then for it to coincidentally be the next witness that is called by the defense would be a veteran that was just recently applauded at the urging of the court and the judge um, by everyone in the room gives at least the perception that the judge desired the room, including the jurors, to engage in applauding this defense witness in support of the defense. Because there's just only the most mild disconnect in 
the reason for the applause and the fact that you are engaged in this very high profile case where all eyes across the nation are on this courtroom. And those are the things that I believe judges in particular, if you are not clearly aware of them, they should be extraordinarily sensitive to them in, in situations like these and times like these. The timing, it, it was a, it did not look good at all, but not just for this judge. Remember, Tom, anything that happens in this courtroom is often a sweeping indictment, if you will, on judges everywhere, justice systems right. everywhere. Right. And right. the idea and the belief and perception is, well, that's how they all are, you know, and it, it it elicits the horror stories that litigants have had all over with a judge that perhaps has made a ruling that could be, you know, approached a different way at a different time. And it sort of solicits that kind of thinking about the justice system in general, when you have those kinds of actions that take place right there in the open under the microscope of national broadcast television on a daily basis. A couple of other things I want to get to about the trial that fits into, I think, what what you're saying. The judge made a ruling throwing out a misdemeanor charge that was lied against Kyle Rittenhouse about carrying uh, this weapon or having this weapon illegally, this AR-15. However, Wisconsin has a particular statute that allows uh, the intent was to allow uh, kids, uh, minors with weapons to go out hunting with their folks or, or uh, uh, an adult guardian. Uh, but the judge made the ruling that this weapon did not fit into the Wisconsin statute. Now, there are a lot of debates going on uh, in legal circles of whether that was a proper judgment. But I think most people are coming down that that was the, the decision that the judge had to make. However, putting that decision in the context of all the things that we talk about, it, it seems to have inordinate importance and to have been magnified. There's no disagreement there. And I believe that it magnifies all the more for a number of reasons. First of all, again, the nature of the proceedings themselves, the fact that these proceedings were high profile, they were clearly being scrutinized and are still being scrutinized. Look at our conversation here, right? They're right. clearly being scrutinized um, by legal analysts all over. But what's more is in addition to the high profileness and the legal scrutiny, also comes in the fact that most individuals that are watching and absorbing this process are still not very attuned to how the process works, much less how laws differ from state to state to state. So imagine living in, you know, Nebraska and you're watching this case and you don't know much about the law in the state of Wisconsin. You have absolutely no idea how it works. And you have a very limited understanding of even how the law works in your home state. But you do have a feeling about fairness. 
you have a sense of what ought to be right and whether or not this seems like the right thing. And so what is the frustration, I believe, that is often born out of decisions like this, even if they are the correct legal decision, is the fact that amidst the specter of the high profile case is also the lack of understanding of the process, the system, and the laws in place that others are expected to appreciate. And this becomes sort of this, you know, hurricane of emotions and feelings and perceptions. Well, my gosh, you know, everybody's in the courtroom watching, the judge is always berating the prosecutor. I think think it seems like the judge kind of, you know, favors the defense and the defendant and, you know, maybe, and again, it, it may be for a number of reasons, but then, you know, gosh, he doesn't even have to get in trouble about the weapon. That seems, that seems unfair. It seems like if you were anywhere else, the rules would be different. And Again, notwithstanding the fact that the judge's ruling may very well have been correct, it goes back to this perception of impropriety, whether it is or isn't, because lay people don't often appreciate what's happening or what's transpired, but they do appreciate senses of fairness. And to them, all of this sort of coming together at one time just doesn't seem fair. The last point I want to bring out about the trial, and then we can move on, is the the defense uh, strategy here. Um, I was a defense attorney a number of years ago. You were a prosecutor. You know, the big question was whether to put Kyle Rittenhouse on the stand. I think the defense team said that to win this case, they have to. Uh, to to show that he was in fear of his life or of serious physical harm. However, at the same time, they were imparting to the jury that this is a young 17, 18-year-old kid who's facing a life, multiple life sentences, uh, and is naive. And they use that uh, to to their benefit. Uh, with the jury. Now, some commentators have said that his testimony was not all that important, that the jury spent time looking at the videos. But I can't help but think that uh, the defense team was playing on that aspect. What do you think? I think you have hit the nail on the head. And I think that given the composition of the jury, And even the fact that, as you and I both know, that, you know, as attorneys and and practitioners and litigating a case, you, it's inappropriate to discuss sentencing or the impact of sentencing as part of your case. I think that those were not necessarily rules that was, um, that were being strongly People knew when when you have a first degree intentional homicide case, people know. Oh, absolutely. Um, And 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 I don't think that they did it. But I think that, again, if it were the prosecution that had hammered this issue home, there would probably have been an admonition. And because it was the defense that was looking to play on the sympathies, if you will, of uh, of jurors. 
that it was acceptable. But here's what I'll also say, just candidly speaking, is that I think for a lot of the jurors, for the judge and for so many in that room, they saw the defendant as a reflection of something relatable. And whether it is their, their kid, child, their, nephew, their grandchild, themselves, themselves, the child, yeah. themselves when they were that age, you know, I've done some boneheaded things when I was 17. Yeah. How many people did you kill when you were 17? How many times did your mom take you out of school and who equipped you with a, a very serious assault rifle so that you could go into a place that's not your hometown and you know, engage. With white militia groups. Yeah. I, I mean, how many times did your parent do that? And and I think that, again, there's a different set of forgiveness rules, if you will, that apply to Kyle Rittenhouse that do not apply to other young men who are of the same age, the same level of brain development, um, and sometimes even the same or similar socioeconomic status but a different ethnic background. Those would okay. not be and, the and, same rules. And, and I want to get to that in, in just a moment. The last thing I want to talk, say about the trial itself is we've been talking about all of these things that we think were inappropriate or uh, it, at best borderline, but certainly tainted the well, so to speak, as, as far as the jury goes. The state, I want to make sure the audience understands the state cannot appeal this case. The, the, there were verdicts of not guilty. If the, if, the, if the jury had come back hung or unable to reach a unanimous verdict, then you know the prosecution may have chosen whether or not to go forward again with a different judge. But the fact that they came back not guilty on all five charges the state can't appeal. You are absolutely correct, which is what makes the job of the prosecutor um, that much more difficult is understanding and appreciating that notwithstanding everything that took place, the rulings throughout the um, feelings perhaps of, of mistreatment, um, that the state has the highest burden of proof, proof beyond a reasonable doubt that is recognized in our justice system. And with the announcement of those not guilty verdicts, it means that the opportunity, the door to prosecution is closed, sealed, shut, double jeopardy has attached. So there are no mulligans, no redos, no retries, no shouting and pouting because you felt like the judge ruled a particular way improperly. That would not have been the case if they, he had been found guilty on one or more charges because the appeal right would have belonged to the defendant to ask the appellate court to review the trial court record and to um, to make perhaps a different determination. The state has no recourse, no opportunity to come back and to say anything. Now, here's what I will say is throughout the trial itself, had the state believed that there was something so egregious, so wrong, a ruling was made that so 
deeply hampered their ability to prosecute this case, they absolutely could have taken what's called an interlocutory appeal, which is an appeal that is taken mid-trial to the appeals court. And you ask the appeals court to review that specific issue or concern and essentially pause the trial while it's happening so that that appellate issue can be reviewed. Um, It seems that notwithstanding everything we've outlined here and everything we've said, that the state and its wisdom or the prosecutors and their wisdom did not feel that there was anything that had transpired that was worthy of an interlocutory appeal for the appellate court to address. Now, what could have perhaps been the case is if had an interlocutory appeal been taken, that may have sent a signal subliminally to the judge to perhaps recalibrate either behavior or wording or treatment throughout the trial, understanding that the state was willing to use this tool, one of the few tools it has available um, to help correct a record or something it finds to be egregious mid-trial. But that did not take place. And instead, the prosecutors plowed forward with trying this case, even again with the defendant taking the witness stand. And the perception and the belief often is that when juries take a while to reach a verdict, that that generally bodes better for the prosecution than for the defense. In this instance, it did not. But also remember the George Zimmerman case. And that verdict took a while to return as well with a similar outcome. No doubt um, there is no foolproof rule on timing of deliberation vis-a-vis an outcome from from the actual jury. But what I'll say here is that the tools that were available to the prosecution, I think they used them as best they believed were appropriate. But the outcome, as you said, is such that they have no recourse and they cannot try this young man again on these charges. Although he does face potentially very significant exposure from a civil standpoint and It is, even though he is 17, he, perhaps his mother, whomever equipped him with the firearm, may all face extreme and very significant civil exposure um, or wrongful death exposure at a later time that may result in him never earning a dollar in his lifetime given or depending upon the size of any award that may be granted. And for our listeners, if you think back to the O.J. Simpson case, O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of the criminal charge, but was found liable in a civil case and has been hounded the rest of his life uh, because of that. Uh, and many people would say appropriately so, but but that's a similar kind of situation if you want to use an analogy. Just I want to make one more comment, and that is the, the, the prosecution may have chosen not to take an interlocutory appeal for a couple of reasons. One, they either didn't give a damn, or two, they, they thought they had a slam dunk on the case. And interlocutory appeals uh, delay cases 
uh, inordinately sometimes. And so that, uh, that, that all are, those all are considerations. I absolutely agree. And, but here's what I would say to that. Having been a prosecutor, there's never a time when I believed my case was so strong that as it unfolded and were it to have unfolded in the manner that this case unfolded with, I would say unraveled, uh, but go, go right. Yes. Or or as, even as the evidence came in, but if you combine the evidence coming in with the treatment from the judge, there's no way in the world I would not be looking at that as an option if for no other reason than to make a record, because the strength of your case is no longer necessarily the issue. The people who are going to decide the strength of your case, the jurors are being guided by the nose, if you will, by the judge. And if you believe that the judge is or has displayed some type of biased behavior that could sway your jury inappropriately, That becomes a tool that is absolutely necessary, notwithstanding the strength of your evidence, notwithstanding, you know, how much you've invested emotionally. You have to keep your head in the game. And right now, under those circumstances, I would have been thinking, I've got great witnesses. I've got great evidence. I've got a great case. I've got a crummy situation in front of me. I need to correct this. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, The Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. We have a young white male who shot and killed two other white males and wounded another one uh, seriously. Um, If the defendant had been a similar age person of color, be it black or brown or Asian, do you think the result would have been the same? I absolutely do not believe that the verdict would have been the same. And in fact, we know that it would not be because we've seen it happen many times over, even with um, some of the best defense teams available. Um, Young defendants who are people of color do not receive the benefit of the doubt And also, let's face it, they also don't often receive the jurors of their choosing, essentially. They don't receive the benefit of having jurors who reflect upon them. As this defendant had the benefit um, of having from 
the jury that served in that case. And so there's this clear lopsidedness, or at least the perception of this lopsidedness in a justice system where everybody's expected to play by the same rules, right? We're all supposed to respect the outcomes, respect the court, respect the process, do our duties as jurors, and you know, us understand and appreciate, although democracy is not perfect, this is the best we've got. Well, this is another example, if you will, of its imperfection. This young man absolutely embodied, I believe, um, the example of what perhaps any one of those jurors could relate to, either personally or through familial relationships, or maybe family or, or personal relationships. It's the so a, t- a, a type of white privilege. Indeed. It is, you know, that's the neighbor's kid, or that was me, I did dumb things. Or I remember the time when I, you know, flattened all the neighbor's tires or, you know, and no one ever prosecuted me. And so, you know, and he was just, quote, a scared little boy, or he was just very fearful. Think of that in the context of how we see, treat, and perceive young black and brown men who are similarly situated. They are no longer demonic. Oh no, exactly. Demonic, uh, fearful. uh, You're fearful of them. Uh, They're going to do heinous things. Or they already have done these things. Just by their status. Yes. Or they, if they aren't going to do, they've already done it. And when you think of them, you don't think of them as little boys who are still experiencing brain development. Like, Uh, you know, like the defendant in this case, because let's face it, at 17, you've not even experienced full brain development. But there's some belief that if you are black or brown, you have leapfrogged over those developmental stages in your life. So you don't either experience it or you've already experienced it, perhaps as a toddler, and you have rocketed past that. You know full well what you're doing. You've been you know, raised by wolves and heathens. And so you are naturally inclined to be, um, you know, to harm others. You have a natural inclination toward violence. You have no justification for feeling fear because of course, you know, young black and brown children don't feel fear. They only experience hate. They don't have the excuse of, of feeling or the defense of feeling fearful and therefore reacting out of that fear because they are often perceived as the perpetrators in the first place, the exaggerators, the aggressors that often place everyone else in fear. And therefore they are the ones who need to be stopped. They are the ones whose actions need to be arrested. They are the ones who need to be incarcerated or locked up or some way limited so that they cannot do what they are perhaps genetically predisposed to do, which is to cause harm. There is no way that I could be convinced that were this young man um, of a same or similar age, but of a different ethnic background, that he would have received the benefits throughout. I doubt that he would have received the courtesies and the benefits from a thoughtful jurist. I doubt that he would have received the uh, 
you know, the the strongest advocacy from a defense squad, not just I mean, some of them do good to get a defense attorney, but an entire defense team or a defense attorney who knows their name because they're so overworked. <laughs> exactly. And yes, and and doesn't do not have the resources to pour into this particular case and certainly would not have been the type of defendant who would have been able to look into the um the box of a jury and to see most if not all of them reflective of himself. That almost never happens. Almost never. And so with that being the lopsidedness of this entire experience, I would have to say quite honestly and quite frankly, even from my own perspective, unequivocally, no, it is not likely that that outcome would have been reached for a young man of color. And let's discuss something else. Speaking of a young man of color, I do realize that the victims, and I will call them victims in this case, the decedents are, are victims, they are deceased. And then there's one right. individual who's who's missing a limb. Yeah. And so they they didn't, these were not self-inflicted wounds. <laughs> this is not, these these are not, you know, they didn't happen upon themselves. But the bottom line is the entire reason for this interaction was the result of a black man, Jacob Blake, being shot eight times by the police. And so there's clearly this idea in some circles that it is more important to protect or defend property than even the lives of human beings. And what's also, I think, just very unsettling and and perhaps even um, hurtful to many people of color is the idea that even those who are from non-minority communities or white communities who are standing up for defending the um, atrocities and the mistreatment of people of color, of Blacks, even they lack the regard and respect uh, that black victims are often given. And so the question genuinely becomes, where are the true allies? It, it does. And, and I, I want to get to that in a moment, but, but let's stay with, with what we're talking about here. And, and that is the, the, difference, the two different legal systems we have. We have one for for white privilege and we have one for everybody else. Um, And and let's talk about, um, you know, what if anything can be done with this system that it seems so broken? Can we ever fix it? And so I, I said to someone um, very, very recently that, you know, when we look at our system of democracy, I think that there are some who look to the executive branch and the legislative branch, and they understand that there's all kinds of political wranglings and engagement, and they just dismiss it as such because that's the expectation. But when it comes to the court, that is truly the last bastion of justice and the cornerstone of democracy, 
because even the executive branch and the legislative branch realize that they too rely on the objectivity of courts to save and preserve democracy and to be the pillar of fairness. And so to your question of recognizing and acknowledging that this system of justice is actually, you know, a seemingly a, a bicameral system of sorts. There's there are two different systems that one that exists for those who have privilege, often those who are white with privilege, and then those who, and then everybody else. Because I would even go as far as to say that many times those who are poor, um, correct, and but and and lack privilege, whether or not they are black fall into the everybody else. But, you know, it, it just all depends on who you are, what cause you're standing for, and whether or not the, you know, those who have the resources will come to save the day. And so I really genuinely believe that um, the defendant in this case perhaps would have otherwise been in the everybody else category because I don't see where um, he he and his family had any particular you know, high socioeconomic um, status, but it was the cause. It was elevated. That elevated him to a point where there are those who were willing to fund this behavior on his behalf and support it on his behalf and continue to do so. And so that is where the privilege is reaped because at least there's an escape hatch for some individuals. If you are a person of color, they're still looking for the escape hatch because there is none. But in this instance, he had it. And I definitely understand and I know that there continues to be the reinforcement. This entire trial reinforced that idea that there is not one system of justice where lady justice is blind and the rules are applied the same to everyone. And so that idea of procedural fairness and evening the playing field and the rules being equally applied, that that idea is still exactly that, an idea, because it is absolutely not the practice. It is not the reality. And this was a reinforcement of that very perception that these aren't the same rules and they wouldn't be the same rules if it were, if this young man were substituted for some other young man who were, again, same age, same socioeconomic status, but different color. Judge, I I know that you're a black female judge in Northeastern Ohio. Uh, I know you're active in your community and, and with your church and other organizations. Uh, and as such, I know you're sort of the lightning rod for people to, to reach out to. What kind of response have you gotten from your friends, neighbors, relatives, uh, regarding this? So the day this verdict was rendered Friday. Yeah. I will tell you the first reaction I had 
when I read that he had been found out guilty on all charges, it's the first thing I just stopped and said, oh, Jesus, no, not guilty on all charges. And not because the jury was wrong, because I now know the palpable anxiety of parents, friends, neighbors, etc. And so it started with a call, literally just just moments after the release of the verdict um, from a very close friend, family member. And they said, you know, I have never been more afraid for my child until now. And their son is a sophomore in college, is a very tall sophomore, played baseball and and is very athletic, Um, is a child that is um, maybe darker in skin tone and um, is extraordinarily well-mannered, exceptionally smart, wonderfully kind, but the fear is perception and that this will open the floodgates to every form of mistreatment for not only this child, but everyone else's. Again, remember the entire basis, the entire reason and rationale for the whole reason why this case became a case in the first place was because of the shooting of a black man. And so the feeling is that this will never stop. In fact, The fear for so many is that we are turning the clock backward and that we have an entire generation of young people who no doubt are resistant, but have no clear understanding or appreciation for how we are losing ground or at least the perception that we're losing ground. And so this particular person is, they had, I mean, stunning fear and anxiety in their voice over just afraid, fear that their child would ever be stopped or that they would have any kind of encounter because with police or law enforcement because they're really fearful that their child's life matters so little, if at all. And so fast forward from that day to actually just this past Sunday, and there's a American flag that waves outside my home. And I received a message from a neighbor that um, is also a, a African-American male. And he sends me a really nice text message. But inside of the message, he just wanted to know, given everything that's happened and everything that's going on, why would I even wave a flag? Why wave an American flag? For a country that, in his view, does not love us, meaning blacks, like we love it. Sounds like Doc Rivers, um, who put it so eloquently those several months ago. And I found myself inside of a very in-depth and deeply personal conversation with this neighbor that said, you know, the this verdict troubled him. He's a father. He's a brother, he's a son, he's a neighbor, he's a friend, all of those things you can imagine. 
And not only is he afraid for his children and his family, he's afraid for his own safety and well-being. He's concerned about what happens when you are as polite as you can because you are trying to see around that corner. And for whatever reason, you still don't make it home to the dinner table. It seems, and he's particularly concerned, just as I said about the family friend, that the clock is turning backward. And that no matter how much progress you make, no matter how much, how well you present, no matter how you are twice as good to get half as far, none of that matters. And why doesn't it matter? Because at the end of the day, you're still black. And that systems are not in place to protect you, but that rather they are in place to help destroy you. Because if you never believed it before, just open your eyes and see what's happening now. And they are believing it more and more with each passing day. And it is so disappointing because I feel like I am a part of this system where we can, we have the opportunity to change the perception and we can change the trajectory of thinking, but we are facing an uphill battle with each new case that is nationally televised and where outcomes or processes, processes at least, present as unfair. And I realize that this isn't the case that we're speaking about, but when you can you know, air this one or you see this case. And at the same time, in 2021, you can turn the channel and you see a white attorney standing up in a court and declare to a white judge and a predominantly white jury that they don't want to see any more black pastors in a courtroom. After having endured this verdict, then you see that. Then it really reinforces the message that nah this is this system wasn't created for everybody it was created for somebody but not everybody which is why some people are treated differently from others one of the positives that came out of the black lives movement in the demonstrations over the last year was the fact that the demonstrators were so multicultural, and you talked earlier about allies. I, I want to read to you something that was uh, published Friday by the Associated Press and, and get your reaction. It says, Rittenhouse's acquittal created fear that protesters against racial injustice and other causes will be in danger from right-wing causes that already deemed Rittenhouse a hero after the shootings. The Reverend Jesse Jackson, the longtime civil rights leader and activist, told the Associated Press that it suggests, quote, it's open season on human rights demonstrators, end quote. Jesse Jackson goes on to say, quote, the concern over this verdict is compounded by the fact that Jacob Blake, who was originally the issue, was shot by a policeman seven times in the back. He's in a wheelchair today, paralyzed forever, and that policeman is walking the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, on the force today, Jackson said. How do you respond to that? 
I would um, say that truer words never spoken. Um, But I would also underscore that by saying that not only is it open season on human rights protests in America, but that this is a stunning hypocrisy on the part of America who seeks to police the rest of the world when it comes to human rights atrocities. And here in our own backyard, you have effectively um, created a chilling effect for those who would seek to right the wrongs of mistreatment on the parts of individuals um, or to band together to protest them in a country that was founded on the idea of free speech and the ability to redress your government grievances to protest freely. And that this is the antithesis of that. And as I said before, is that expectation that other branches of government might play politics with these types of outcomes is expected. But what is not expected is that the courts would ever engage it from that vantage point. And there is a very, um, this is a difficult argument to make when courts in some way seem to sanction this chilling effect or seem to encourage this chilling effect. And you are so right in that the Black Lives Matter movement was successful and is and continues to be successful because it's not Black people only that is raising the issue of Black Lives Matter. It is because our Thanksgiving tables are so multicultural. It is because our because wedding days look very different than they did before. It is because every important event in our life now invites the people that are important to us. And those events are not homogenous. They're not all white. They're not all black. They're not all Asian. They're not all Hispanic, but rather it is a coming together, a mixture and a melding of all of these different backgrounds, races, ethnicities, and a celebration of them. And just like a chain that has weak or strong links, they band together so as to uphold anyone who is weak among them and to show support. And that is what what, what happened with the Black Lives Matter movement. That's what's happening in everyday lives. Look at our college campuses. Our kids are coming home and they have friends that represent every kind of background imaginable. And they aren't seeing color the way that, you know, color was seen and and appreciated 40, 50, 60 years ago. That's why the the Black Lives Matter movement has been so profound because young people and old people and middle-aged people are standing shoulder to shoulder with folks that they may have actually been legally precluded from being in the company of 40, 50, or 60 years ago. And because we all find value in diversity, and there seems to be this rapid uptick in movement into somehow destroying that, and that's what becomes exceptionally scary, is when you let hate win, then all of us lose. 
Judge, um, I, I'm not one for predictions, but uh, I will predict this. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, whether he wants it or not, will become the poster child of the alt-right white supremacist uh, militia, militia groups in this country. Uh, I'm not talking about just political conservatives uh, that we can have civil debate with. I, I'm talking about the the uh, the conspiracy theorists and and the people out there who who want to change the multicultural atmosphere that that you're, you're talking about. I truly fear we're going to have more and more violence. We have only seen the tip of the iceberg, and this case propels that forward. Astronomically so. I believe that um, those who share sentiments similar to Kyle Rittenhouse and his family are emboldened, and that they now will, as you said, whether um, he likes it or not, or for better or for worse, he will become the poster child for this particular movement and will fuel the sentiment of that movement. And happily so. There will also be those who you and I both know who will use him, um, even in his youth and his you know, immaturity, but they'll use him until he is no longer worth it and he has no more value, but they'll use them to continue to advance these um, these ideals and these initiatives and these groups. And again, when he loses value and the next flavor of the month comes along, they'll discard him, but he can look forward to being used in that way. And unfortunately, possibly even by some people that he loved, that he loves, um, with the expectation that, yes, there may be some small benefit for him for now, but history will judge him as it has judged George Zimmerman, as it has judged so many. History, I think, will judge these people harshly. And it also, quite frankly, will judge America harshly. Judge, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, uh, even though the topics are <laughs> very, very difficult that we try to unpack. And and I, I appreciate your time, your expertise, your analysis, but also your perspective. Uh, it, it really adds, I think, to the fabric of what we're trying to do here. Well, I want to say thank you to you as well. I think it takes an extraordinary amount of courage and um, commitment to continue to have these full-throated, transparent conversations about the issues of today that are deeply impacting all of us in some way or another and not hiding from them. And so um, to you and to the awesome work that you do in ensuring that we do not let these things fall by the wayside, but rather we confront them, we discuss them, and then we do something. It's so refreshing. It's so extraordinary, but it's also so you. Thank you. Thank you. And my, my last word is uh, a word I've adopted, onward. You know? Indeed. Onward. onward. We, we need to move onward, but not forget what has transpired. Thanks, Judge. Thank you. Thank you so much. 
Today, we've been talking to judge, legal analyst, and judicial educator, Judge Gail Williams Byers, about the impact and the fallout of the five not guilty verdicts in the Kyle Rittenhouse case. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.